Welcome to the podcast of Azel Christian Church. We are a Disciples of Christ Church community in Azel, Texas. We invite everyone to be who you are with us, the doubting, the believing, the wondering, and everything in between. On this podcast, you'll hear our pastor, Reverend Ashley Dargai, preach on how the expansive and generative love of God is seen through Jesus, the prophets, the early church, and the faith forebears, and how this love helps us care for the world more deeply and faithfully. Sometimes it's messy and tough, but it's good news, and it is for you. Our text for today is Matthew 3, 13 through 17. It's on the back of your bulletin. If you'd like to follow along, it'll also be on the screen. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. And when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw God's Spirit descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from the heaven said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Today we begin a new worship series called Leaving Nazareth. Next week we'll read the text when Jesus actually does leave Nazareth to prepare for his ministry, but today we read the text that prepares him to leave. In the season after Epiphany, which we celebrated last week, we walk alongside Jesus, observing his ministry, and we learn who he is beyond the baby in the manger and the man on the cross. The Epiphany, when uh, we celebrated last week with the gifts of the Magi, is the surprise that Jesus is for everybody. But the surprises don't end there. Just as Jesus leaves his hometown, he calls his disciples and invites them to leave the, the familiar, the place that they know as home, and they embark on an adventure that we are still talking about after all these years. As we journey together out of Nazareth onto paths unfamiliar, we must ask ourselves, what can we learn about taking a step into the unknown from these stories of Jesus? Are we brave enough to take that step with him, to take that first step, and then another, and then another? In today's story, we witness his baptism. And this story is told differently depending on the gospel, but here in Matthew, our text for this lectionary cycle, we get a curious and troubling encounter between John and Jesus. If you remember, the text that precedes this one is where John calls the religious leaders a brood of vipers, He is inviting people to come and be baptized, and when the religious leaders show up, he's incensed. Who warned them of the coming wrath, he asks them. And instead of baptizing them, he calls for their repentance. He says that they do not get to move forward in the grace of God without repairing the harm that has been done before. And then in today's text, we see that Jesus also joins this line of those who want to be baptized. And John is taken aback, but for a different reason. He recognizes who Jesus is. You know, he leapt in his own mother's womb all those years ago, just being in close proximity. And so when Jesus walks up, he goes, no, 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 Jesus, you've got it all wrong. 
You don't need to be baptized. I need to be baptized by you. But Jesus stops him and says, let it be so. He utters the same words that his mother did when the angel told her that she would be carrying the Son of God in her womb. Let it be so. A holy consent that changed the world once and so does again. And John baptizes Jesus and the Spirit of God descends on him like a dove, like a peace offering, like the sign of hope to Noah on the ark, and says, this is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. It's like divine approval. It's like a coronation. And it's also a foreshadowing of what is to come. And in this dramatic denouement, the scene closes. And the story feels complete. I feel like we can just close the book and move on, right? The divine baby grown to be a man, baptized in the river and confirmed by God's own self. But as many of you know, baptism is not the end of the story. In fact, it is only the beginning. In Matthew's gospel, the baptism of Jesus begins his ministry. To be sure, baptism names his ministry, and that's crucial in identifying who Jesus is, but we know as people who have lived lives that our identity is never static. One's identity grows and deepens as the years go on, so that this immersion into the river is just the beginning of a continual, persistent plunge into deeper and deeper waters throughout his life, just as it is in ours. And many very smart people have wondered why Jesus was baptized in the first place. I mean, why would Matthew name it as God's will that Jesus be baptized to fulfill righteousness? If he truly was the Son of God, the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world, what need does he have of repentance, of forgiveness? John the baptizer has got a point, right? We shouldn't be baptizing Jesus. He should be baptizing us. On August 16th, 1967, Martin Luther King Jr. delivered a speech at the annual convention of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference in Atlanta. And it would be the last time that he would address the SCLC before his death. Dr. King was unpopular during his life, despite retroactive claims of support by many today. And earlier that year, he had delivered his famous speech at Riverside Church in New York City, condemning the Vietnam War declaring it a war on America's poor, as they were most often the ones sent to fight and die. He noted the hypocrisy of the powerful in America siding with the wealthy and powerful in Vietnam in the name of freedom. So that he was unpopular for his racial justice work and he was despised for his economic stances. Yet he continued to speak boldly, as we all know, until his assassination. And in this speech to the, to the SCLC, to a room full of religious leaders, of pastors, he said, all of us have moral convictions and concerns. And so often we have problems with power. And there's nothing wrong with power if power is used correctly. You see, what happened is that some of our philosophers got off base. And one of the great problems of history is the concepts of love and power have usually been contrasted as opposites, as polar opposites. 
so that love is identified with a resignation of power and power with a denial of love. But what is needed is a realization that power without love is reckless and abusive and that love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best, power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice and justice at its best is love correcting everything that stands in the way of love. You see, King was clear that those with power must join with love to implement justice and that love must use its power to correct everything that stands in the way of the beloved community that he preached. He said that love is not a passive bystander phenomenon of sentimentality. It is a radical movement of putting every resource in place to ensure that justice and flourishing are brought to all peoples, particularly those who have been marginalized, exploited, and harmed. And King goes on to say in this speech to a bunch of Christian leaders who I'm sure were shifting uncomfortably in their seats by now, this is no time for romantic illusions and empty philosophical debates about freedom. This is a time for action. Without realizing that this is a time for action, we will end up with solutions that don't solve, answers that don't answer, and explanations that don't explain. Dr. King said over and over in his life that mere talk of love means nothing. It's just hot air being blown into a room. Action is needed to actually make real change. And so he says, in other words, your whole structure must be changed. A nation that will keep people in slavery for 244 years will thingify them and make them things. And therefore they will exploit them and disempower people generally economically. And a nation that will exploit economically will have to have foreign investments and everything else will it, and it will have to use its military might to protect those investments. And all of these problems are tied together, he says. All of these problems are tied together. One of my favorite things that Dr. King says is in his letter from a Birmingham jail. He says, we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly well-versed in biblical and Christian tradition. Being a pastor himself, Dr. King knew that our fates are all tied up together. He knew that the white person's soul was tied up in the treatment of black bodies. And he warned that oppression was not a neutral act of any party, but that the oppressor was harmed just as the oppressed was harmed. And because of this, those who oppress those who look like the oppressors, those who have benefited from centuries of oppression, must do active work to repair the harm, not only for the sake of freedom and flourishing and restoration of black, brown, and indigenous people in the US, but also for the state of our own souls as white folks. Dr. King never had any illusions about the difficult and challenging work justice and love are. He saw it clearly until the day that he died. And so though this speech was given near the end of his life, we know that his work was a beginning for many. 
And he says to the room of well-meaning, love-bound, justice-seeking Christians, I must confess, my friends, that the road ahead will not always be smooth. There will still be rocky places of frustration and meandering points of bewilderment. There will be inevitable setbacks here and there. And there will be those moments when the buoyancy of hope will be transformed into the fatigue of despair. Our dreams will sometimes be shattered and our ethereal hopes blasted. And we may again, with tear-drenched eyes, have to stand before the bier of some courageous civil rights worker whose life will be snuffed out by dastardly acts of bloodthirsty mobs. But difficult and painful as it is, we must walk on in the days ahead with audacious faith in the future. And he tells this room of Christians the line that we all know from him, let us realize that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. When I studied not only Dr. King's works, but his sermon in seminary, his sermons in seminary, I was struck by what I perceived as his fatalism. I mean, it seemed like he had this belief that he would die prematurely that the work of justice would continue to be hindered by hate and violence and power without love. But how could he not believe that? I mean, he had buried so many of his friends and co-workers in the cause. He read the death threats in his mailbox. He shielded his family from bullets and bombs and fiery crosses. But he spoke often not of the words of his enemies, but the silence of his friends his white moderate friends who wanted to play the sinner, who wanted to find middle ground in an attempt to not rock the boat or draw attention or move too fast. But he warned them over and over that this lukewarm approach would only aid those who wish to oppress and maintain control. That neutrality is never neutral, but it swings power over to those who already have it. King was clear-eyed about the bitter hard work that lay ahead, that still lays ahead before us today, that is still ours to do as Christians, as predominantly white Christians who claim to love justice and advocate for true peace. And I think perhaps King's difficult words and warnings give us an insight into why Jesus insisted on his own baptism. He was the man of sorrows and the friend of sinners. And his joining the line of those who wished to be baptized, who knew of their need to repent and be forgiven, was a signal of solidarity with the sinners, with the poor, with the oppressed. In Jesus, God's own self comes alongside us, even to the point of joining us in this rite of repentance, which means that all who follow Jesus are setting out on a journey of humility and solidarity, of confession and grace, of the way of love and justice. And he signals that those who follow him receive the call as leaders, as shepherds, to be the first in line to repent and to confess and to repair. You know, so often we hedge and fudge and make excuses for wrongs. We have perfectly good reasons for why we did the wrong thing. We say that wasn't our intent. That wasn't how we meant it. 
But if we are being honest followers of the baptized Jesus, we should be quick to say, I was wrong. This is what I did. I own the harm I caused. And now my priority is the well-being of those I have hurt. Not my own image or my feelings or my privilege, but you, the one whom I have harmed. We should be the first ones to confess our wrongs, to own up to the ways that we have fallen short, to be direct and specific about it, to join in this pattern of humility, integrity, of getting in line. As Christians, as leaders in this community, we should be first in line to seek repair, to listen to the reparations asked by those who have been harmed by us. This means in the context of interpersonal harm, between two people, but this also means in the context of institutional and corporate harm, such as the violence done to LGBTQ plus people by the church and Christians historically. This means in the context of societal harm, such as the historical and modern day oppression and violence of black and brown people by primarily white people and systems created by white people. Our baptism reminds us, just as King does, that we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Our fates, our lives, our relationship with the divine are all caught up in one another. The way we interact, the way that we love, the way that we hate, the way that we harm, the way that we heal, the way that we wound and the way that we repair all directly affect our own relationships with the most holy God. And baptism reminds us that our initiation into a community that transcends time and space plunges us into deep waters. It is not something that we can merely dip our toes into. No, we must take a deep breath and immerse our whole selves in this work of repentance. Baptism promises us new life, but it also drowns us before it resurrects. Repentance and repair must come before forgiveness and reconciliation. In fact, we need to do the work of repentance and repair, even if there will be no forgiveness or reconciliation, because it is our work to do in the way of Jesus. The work of right relationship is worthy work unto itself. And our work as followers of Jesus is solidarity. In joining the power we have with the love we have on behalf of the least powerful. Our work is to get in that line, to be the first in line to confess, and to follow in the uncomfortable yet worthy way of our brother and redeemer, Christ Jesus. Let it be so. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Azel Christian Church podcast. Azel Christian Church exists to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ through meaningful liturgy during worship, a public witness through outreach in the community, the nurturing of the spiritual life of every age group, and the witness of each member through discipleship, baptism, and the sharing of resources. To support this podcast and the ministries of Azel Christian Church, visit azelchristianchurch.org. Here you can contribute through giving online or find our Venmo information. If you're looking for a church or simply want to talk to one of our ministers, contact us through our website and we will be in touch. Talk to you soon.